This morning, I want to begin with prayer for Lance and Sarah, and then I'll give you a map of our morning and kind of the direction we're going, and we'll recap last week and um, try to sew this together this morning. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for the rain. I thank you for the, the cooler weather. I thank you, Father, for your provision that you have given us in this fellowship, in each other, and certainly through your son, Jesus. And Father, I lift up Lance and Sarah. Father, I lift up their ministry. I lift up their marriage. I lift up this body, Father, that we would have a sensitivity and a keenness and an awareness of them. I pray, Father, for your work there, that your Holy Spirit, Father, would move in that country, that you would use Lance and Sarah. I lift up their health. I lift up their children and ask you, Father, for their protection. And pray, Father, that you would watch over them. Father, I lift up our time this morning. I pray, Father, that we would hear your word. I pray, Father, that I am not in the way. And that, Father, that through me, that you would clearly communicate your word, Father. I thank you for this time. I thank you for each member of this fellowship. I thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning and to worship you. These things I ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen. Welcome to Cross Point Fellowship. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're certainly glad to have you. Uh, as we move into the passage, if you don't have a Bible, if you look under the seat right in front of you, if you don't have a Bible, then certainly use that Bible and you may take it home with you as well. This morning's map is going to be primarily found, the focal passage is going to be in Mark 15, verses 39 through 47. So if you'll turn to Mark 15, verses 39 through 47. Also, if you want to just jot this down briefly, we'll take a look at Matthew 17, 9. We'll also look at Matthew 15, 19. Galatians 6, 3, and Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Now, to recap last week and to try to sew these two sermons together and the concept and the things that we were talking about, if you'll remember, last week we looked closely at two ways to miss the gospel. And one was as, and, and one was as a pagan in the prodigal son, and the other in the elder brother as a Pharisee. The older brother thought he was in, and the prodigal son was out. But Jesus says the humble are in, and the proud are out. And we saw how a prodigal God redeems us as God is our Father. And we saw our need for redemption in our sin-born condition, and how salvation is designed, and how it's supposed to work. This week, we're going to look at three groups of people. And we're going to look at how these three groups of people got the gospel. And really what this is, this is a continued look of who is in and who is out as it pertains to the story of Jesus. So if you have your Bible, look in Mark chapter 15. We'll read verses 39 through 41. And then we'll also read uh, the 42 through 47 so in verse 39, it says, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that he had breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. And there was also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, mother of James, and the younger of Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there are also many other women who came with him to Jerusalem. 
And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that should, I'm sorry, was surprised to hear that should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to, to, to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So most of us have heard the story of the crucifixion. And so what are we looking at this morning? Basically what we have here is we have a group of women, a pagan, and a Pharisee. And basically what's happening here is I see you, and I see me, and I see us as a fellowship, because each one of us could lean easily into one of these characters. Each one of us could metaphorically be on that hill, standing there facing that cross. And I think in our daily lives, it's important to realize the circumstances of ordinary people like me and you. As we stand on the hill where Jesus was murdered, as the wind blew and the sky unnaturally darkened, it's important... It's an important scene because it plays out over and over again in our daily lives. It's the context of the gospel in that the cross should be a daily reminder to each of us as to who we are in Christ. If you'll remember, I believe it was back in the summer, Morris preached two sermons on what our identity in Christ looks like. And if you missed that, I would encourage you to go back and look or listen to those two sermons about our, our identity in Christ. So let's look at these three groups of people and the circumstances that brought them together. And really, these, the same circumstances that brought that group of people together on that hill are the same set of circumstances that bring us together this morning. And so there's three things that I want us to think about kind of as a framework in, in the sermon this morning. The first is, what do we all desire Number two, the redemption that we need. And number three, how do we get it? So what do we all desire? Look at the three classes of people. You have a Roman soldier. He's a pagan. You have the women who were with Jesus all through this time. They were with Jesus through the death, burial, and the resurrection. Then you have Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the ruling council. He's a Pharisee. A pagan, a group of women, and a Pharisee. This is not a typical group that hang out together. They're probably not in small group. What has brought this group of people together to this place? All three get the gospel. All three respond positively to the death of Jesus. And our question this morning is how have we Personally, how have we responded to the death of Jesus? And how have we responded to the death of Jesus as a church? Look in verse 39. The centurion states, truly this man was the son of God. Keep in mind, he was a Gentile. He was a pagan, an idol worshiper. He's living a life that defies all the moral laws of God. He was a government employee. He had been assigned the duty of participating in the execution. The fact that he was a centurion meant that he was in command of a hundred soldiers, which meant he probably answered to Pilate. He was most likely there when the nails were driven in our Savior's hands. He was most likely there when the cross member was raised. And he was most likely there and he witnessed the nails driven in his feet. He had to know that Jesus had been betrayed by Judas. And he had witnessed the utter abandonment of all the disciples from Jesus. He probably knew that even his judge Pilate was convinced 
that he was innocent. Yet Jesus was condemned to die a cruel death, excuse me, a, a cruel death, an agonizing death. Surely this centurion had heard the gossip in town about Jesus. He must have heard the plea of the Jewish thief's confession on the cross for salvation. Meekness and compassion were considered failings by the Romans. Yet standing there on that hill, that, that soldier knew he got it. Despite his orders, apparently the spirit had overwhelmed him. A crisis in his soul. Something I want to share with you just briefly is I almost left the soldier out. And that'll be important later in the sermon. But I almost left him out. But listen to what happens here. Despite his orders, apparently the spirit had overwhelmed him, a crisis in his own soul. And we have to include him here. Not only is he in scripture, but clearly the work of salvation was underway at the very darkest hour. Clearly the Holy Spirit had convicted the centurion who probably only hours before had beaten our Lord. In our lives, we must never forget God is still at work and we should, and we should be careful that we never give up on anyone until we have all the facts. At the very least, the soldier would never be the same. The crisis of the cross was already saving the hearts of men. Look in verse 40. In looking at all the go- excuse me, in looking at all of the gospels, the male disciples, they disappear. They vanish, they're gone. They're nowhere to be found. They're scared and they're timid like Peter in the courtyard. And when it comes to the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, the women are the only one that are around. They stood helpless, but they still stood. They had served Jesus faithfully, and they are the only ones with him through all of these things. It's the female followers, men, that are with Jesus through the most difficult hours. Their love for Jesus had overcome their fear. They got it. It's only the women that see our Lord crucified and buried and resurrected. In a crisis that demonstrate a love and a compassion and a steadfastness to Christ, unheard of in this context, in this traumatic event of the gospel, seeing their helplessness, seeing their compassion and their steadfastness should encourage us in our own lives to hold fast even in our own crisis. Side note, men love and listen to your wives. Allow them to impose wisdom upon you. Listen to them. So the men disappeared and the women remained. And despite their cultural disadvantages and and the vulnerability of these women, they stood and their hearts had been changed. And something that you need to understand about this context is, is both in Jewish and in Roman culture, women had no credibility. They had no status. They had no significance. Yet God uses them, the insignificant, the vulnerable, the downcast and the unworthy to witness and to attest to the only and most significant work of salvation. The testimony of the women in this culture had no legal standing. Their evidence could not be brought into a court of law. Yet in spite in the most critical hour of our salvation, God trusts a group of women with the whole story. The women, they were on the outside. Yet they, the insignificant, are entrusted with seeing the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. The outsiders had become the lifeline of the gospel to history. And we too, as followers of Christ in our setting, in our circumstances, regardless of how insignificant we feel, have been entrusted with the gospel. 
Jesus hasn't forsaken you. And I'm encouraging you individually and and I'm encouraging you corporately to hold the hill that you've been given in your context or in your circumstances. Whether it's a, a job, an illness, a loss, the pain, the abuse, or the uncertainty in light of the gospel, hold your hill in Jesus' name. In 1944, C.S. Lewis at King's College in London, he wrote an essay, and it's rather lengthy, and I encourage you to read that essay. But he states in this essay, he says, the deepest desire of the human heart is to get on the inside. Consciously or subconsciously, we all desire to be the center. We all want to be in the right place at the right time. And our culture tells us to do whatever we can by going to the right schools, associating with the right people, and doing things that are right that by following a set of rules that you too will be on the inside. In the local vernacular, at least in Greenville, we call it a click. By following said rules, other people will have to center on you, dance around you, and seek your approval. And the rules require others to to revolve or orbit around you. It's an unspoken, sinful, lustful passion of the human heart to seek the center, to seek attention, to seek the affirmation of others. And ultimately, in our sin, that is what we all want, is we all want to be the center. Y'all forgive this illustration. It's the best I could come up with, but some of you will understand. Imagine a wagon wheel. A wagon wheel has a hub. Each one of the spokes revolves around the hub. It's a hub-centric wheel. And if one of your spokes breaks or becomes damaged, what happens? The, The wheel fails. The fact that the wheel fails causes a catastrophic crash. We no longer have everything working together. We have the force of the failure pulling us or literally rolling us into the ditch. Our sinful desires, our lust, our lustful desires propel us into the ditch. And the passion of the human heart is to be on the inside. If everyone is longing to be the center of the universe, then you don't have a bunch of souls rolling down the highway. You have a cosmic pileup. A cosmic car wreck is what we look like as we spin out of a control in our, indivi- excuse me, in our individualism and in our secular society, feeding our lust for the inner ring. In other words, we have a heart condition, something so serious that it takes the life out of us, something that's fatal. There's also another passion of the human heart, and that is for order and for justice. Listen to what Ecclesiastes 4.1 says. And again, I saw the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. Most of us were not alive at this time, but certainly we've studied this, and we know about it. But more recently, Martin Luther King said, and I'm paraphrasing, He said, I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at a table of brotherhood. And what this is, is this is a desire for justice, a desire for order, a desire for harmony, a desire for coming together. And justice is what the people on the inside Want the people in the inner rings would not keep everyone else on the outside. In other words, we cross cultures and borders and paradigms 
pride, and our preconceived notions in order that the gospel can go forth. We're called to share the power and the privilege we have with each other. We are to welcome others in. We're to open up and to share whatever God has blessed us with, laying whatever prejudices we have aside. The human heart wants to be on the inside and protect whatever it possesses. So what does our human heart possess? What is our condition? What is that fatal condition that we all have? You can jot this down, but you also can listen. Listen to what Jeremiah 17, 9 says. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Listen to Matthew 15, 19, Jesus speaking. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, and false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Listen to Galatians 6. For if anyone thinks he is something, then he is nothing. He deceives himself. Most often our hearts without the life-changing power of the gospel seek to exclude, not to include, to deceive and to slander. Yet as the power of the Holy Spirit changes us and sanctifies us, there is a longing for a world that shares power and shares privilege. In my own heart, it's called labeling. The text calls it evil thoughts. What I mean by that is we make assumptions. We make assumptions about people, yet we really don't know their circumstances. Just like I did about the centurion, even in the sermon. We don't really know their circumstances, the centurion and the women. They don't fit the... Con- They don't fit the contextual circumstances for redemption. We just say mentally that they don't fit. We see their sin before we see our own, and we marginalize them mentally so we don't have to engage them emotionally. We hide. We hide in our pride, and we hide in our status, and we hide in our desire to be the sinner. To give up the sinner would mean that we're no longer the focus or we're no longer the hub. It's been a struggle for me to confess and realize in my own condition that I've lived a life of more exclusion than inclusion. I had a list. I had a list of who was in and who was out. I've had, a, I've had to ask myself, who have I marginalized? Who have I excluded based on my list? versus God's plan and God's sovereignty. Look at what Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I want you to see this. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, what's happening here is these two passions are at war with each other, the war for inclusion and the war for exclusion. Actually, I said that backwards, the war for exclusion and the war for inclusion. It's the lust for the inner ring, a longing for justice. And this is why in our life there's there's so much conflict. But when God takes a group of women and trusts them with the gospel that no other society would trust them with, when he shares the gospel with a centurion and he brings him in, he does not keep them on the outside. He brings them in. Do you see what we have here? We have a God that demonstrates his desire and longing for justice for all of us. Do you see how he brings the women and the centurion in? We worship a God that hates the inner ring and longs for justice. Now, 
let me just say that I don't believe you can solve all the problems that we have in the world by just dealing with the human heart. Really, it's much more complicated than I have the ability to address. But we don't always win, and seldom does life really go our way. In other words, we still live in a world of exclusion and inclusion. However, do you see how the gospel breaks through in the life of the centurion and these women? Do you see how he breaks through the hard-hearted and the insignificant? And for the remainder of the sermon, I want you to watch how he breaks through in our own lives. Jesus brings us together in the crisis of our own circumstances. So how does this happen? Look at this man, Joseph of Arimathea. We're told here in Mark 15, 42 through 43, that Joseph, a prominent member of the council, goes boldly to Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus. Now, what we know about Joseph was that he was prominent. He was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, and prominent in this context means power. We also know that he was very rich. We learn from John's gospel that he was also a friend of Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was also a member of the ruling council. He too was a wealthy Pharisee. And remember, it's the Pharisees that we talked about last week that were so doctrinally and biblically orthodox, so fastidiously ethical. In Greenville, they would be the nitpickers and the foot tappers in the sermon and the ones that abided in the list of personal expectations versus the grace afforded by the gospel. We said last week about the older brother that as a Pharisee, the older brother in his heart moved out of fear and pride and a need for control. Something's going on with Joseph and Nicodemus. We learn from John's gospel that Joseph and Nicodemus go to bury Jesus' body. And what I want you to see is look how interesting this is. Compared to the centurion and the women as outsiders, Joseph and Nicodemus are considered insiders to religion and to morality. They were the epitome of the insiders of power and privilege, and they are the aristocrats. They're wealthy. And in this culture, in this context, they are men. Members of society, both the inner ring and those on the outside, are brought together in this passage. So why? How have we brought members of the inner ring and the outer ring together? What has happened? What is happening here on this hill this morning? Look at verse 43. It says, Joseph took courage and went to Pilate and asked him for the body of Jesus. And Joseph and Nicodemus had courage, and as they had not had before, it took great courage to go ask for the body of Jesus. And remember what's going on here. The Romans had just tried Jesus and found him guilty of high treason, and the Sanhedrin had found him guilty of blasphemy. So now, for the first time, Nicodemus and Joseph are willing to share what they've been saying in secret. Their reputation, their businesses, their security, their families, possibly even their marriages were at risk. You see, Joseph and Nicodemus were secret followers of Jesus. They liked him and they followed him and they believed him, but they didn't want anybody else to know. So now, when it's really dangerous, they're willing to risk everything in order to bury Jesus. They come out and show their hearts to the Roman establishment and the Jewish leader, excuse me, and to the Jewish leadership. So what's happened? 
What's changed? Well, their attitude towards their, their own power and their own status has changed. You have to understand that money and power is just something that we don't just have. It, it has a tendency to become who we are. It's how, it's how we feel about ourselves. For example, I can wear these things, I can go to these places, and I drive this car, and I know these people, and I live in this place. This is who I am. Listen, very often people that have money and power will say, look at the good that I'm doing. But there's a limit to how much good they're willing to do with it. They won't do good with it if to do the right thing, the power and the money itself are threatened. In other words, they won't do the right thing if it means losing the power and the money or losing the status. This is exactly what Joseph and Nicodemus are doing. They are using their power and their status and their credibility as members of the Sanhedrin to claim the body of Jesus. They certainly don't have the same attitude towards their power as they did before. Clearly, their attitudes towards their power is changing. It's no longer as important to them. There's some kind of identity shift going on. Something is more important to them than their power, that they're willing to risk it. And in this particular case, they're more compassionate. And it's not that they're becoming bolder. They're also becoming stronger as they're also becoming weaker. At the same time, they're becoming more humble. It's a complete transformation of the heart. They're dying to themselves. Look at verse 46. What does Joseph do? He bought some linen cloth. He took down the body, wrapped it in cloth, and placed it in the tomb. If you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this part right here. Stay with me. This was a very, very dirty job. Think about what Joseph and Nicodemus were doing. Physically, they were taking down a dead body that had been beaten, that had been spit upon, had been speared, and was bleeding. This would be a gut-wrenching, awful, loathsome, stomach-turning task for anyone. These Pharisees are getting their shirts dirty. There's blood on their shirts. Their hands are dirty. They don't smell very good. And they violated all of their own man-made rules and mores. They violated their list. A crisis has occurred at the foot of the cross. And these men and women all around them are being changed in this crisis. Jesus has died on the cross and already is changing and saving the hearts of men. Who do you think was supposed to take that body down? Was it the Roman soldiers? Who was supposed to do that? Well, in this culture, in this context, it was women's work. Men didn't do it. Women did it. Women did it or slaves did it, but certainly not prominent wealthy men. But here we have Joseph and Nicodemus taking Jesus' body down and obviously preparing it for burial. Joseph must have recognized the women as faithful followers of Jesus. Certainly in this hour of distress, surely Joseph recognized the women got it. Why do you suppose Joseph didn't say, get over here? You do this. This isn't my job. I'm a prominent wealthy man. You take the body down. But he doesn't do that. He carries out a heart action of love and sacrifice, sacrificing his status to take the body of Jesus from the cross. He's not standing on his status. He doesn't assert his dignity. He forgot about his power, yet he's becoming the person the world needs as an agent of the gospel, a spirit-filled Christian. 
He gets the gospel. At the same time, he's losing his lust for the inner ring. He's becoming who we should be, not standing on our status, forgetting about our, our dignity, sharing our influence, and working for a, an ordered justice in the context of our ordinary and mundane lives. Joseph has been entrusted with the gospel, even as a Pharisee. Don't you see what's happening? The crisis, the death of Jesus is bringing this group of people together just like it should bring us together this morning. Joseph is dying to himself. We should all be dying to ourselves as husbands, as daddies, as role models. We should all be dying to ourselves. Paul illustrates this superbly. Look in uh, Galatians 2.20, please. I want you to see this also. As Joseph and Nicodemus are dying to themselves, Paul illustrates this with, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So how does this work? How do we get it? I wasn't here at the time, and I probably need to go back and listen. The first five or six years of our church history, Ben preached through the book of John, and I would have liked to have heard his sermon on this. But remember Nicodemus in John 3? He had gone to Jesus secretly. He had gone to him at night. He didn't want people to know. See, his power and his status was too important to him. So he goes to talk to Jesus with his power and his money. And Jesus says, you must be born again. To even enter my kingdom. Here Jesus is talking to a Pharisee, a Bible teacher, a religious man. And he says, you must be born again. Bottom line, you have to start over. You have to start at zero. Nothing you've done is of any benefit Nothing you've done achieves anything towards getting into the kingdom of God. We can only imagine how Nicodemus must have felt as a Bible teacher. After all, he probably wanted to go through his list. Look what I've done. Surely, Jesus, you meant the women or the prostitutes and the tax, and the tax collectors, but me? Surely... We as Pharisees, as religious leaders, surely we get extra credit. Jesus says, no. Prostitute, Bible teacher, pagan Pharisee, you must be born again. You need to be saved radically by grace. We all, we all are on the same page and we all need radical grace. Listen, I'm sure Joseph and Nicodemus didn't really understand this at first, just like I didn't or maybe you didn't. But there are two ways to miss the gospel. There are two ways to be your own Savior and Lord. There's two ways to really mess up your life. And one is as a pagan. The other is as a Pharisee. There's the Roman centurion as a pagan. How does a pagan become his own Savior and Lord? By breaking all the rules. Drugs, violence, idol worship. Yet this pagan says, truly, this man was the son of God. How does a Pharisee become his own savior and Lord? By keeping all the rules. By being so good and saying, God, you've, you've got to bless me and take me to heaven and everyone else might or must bow before me because I'm so right. Remember God. Remember how good I've been. Remember I've never disobeyed you. Both of these scenarios are very different, but both are radically self-centered lives. They're both hub-centric like the wheel where all the spokes must revolve around the center, which makes for a huge cosmic crash. 
One way says, I don't want anything to do with God. And the other says, oh yeah, I obey God all the time. This is why Jesus is saying, prostitute, Bible teacher, you must be born again. You need radical grace. And that is what had begun in Joseph and in Nicodemus. So how do we know? Look in verse 45. When he had learned from the centurion it was so, Pilate gave Jesus' body to Joseph. And James Edwards in his commentary points out in verse 45 that in Mark 14, Jesus had said to his disciples, take, eat, this is my body. He says, take my body. And Edwards points out in his commentary that Joseph of Arimathea is the first person to take his body. It means It means to own and to grasp and to eat. Think about taking the body of Jesus from the cross. Ask yourself how you may have made the supper impersonal. How has it become ritualistic? Is the supper taking Jesus' body just an irreverent self-centeredness that feeds a homemade religion? to feel good about Sunday or maybe yourself. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ left the inner ring the inner ring of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to spend himself on us, on you, and on me. He left the inner ring and gave his life for us. And when, we, and when he went to the cross, he centered on us. Remember, the primary thing that Jesus came to do was to seek, to serve, and to save. And in the context of this society, and even now, this, this whole paradigm changes everything where deity is serving humanity. When Joseph and Nicodemus realized what was happening before their very eyes, they lost the lust for the inner ring. Jesus Christ changed them. The radical grace they needed that we need was born in a crisis of their own identity. They abdicated themselves and put on a new self in the name of Jesus Christ. We escape ourselves and our condition through his sacrifice. As we become less, we actually become more through Christ. I know we've got the kids in here, and I want to be be short. Do you see how the gospel makes you a person who shares the power and the privilege we all share in Christ? Do you see how the gospel causes us to reach out to other races and classes of people that in our flesh we would never even consider in Greenville? in the world, or maybe in our own fellowship. Understanding that the gospel says you are so bad that Jesus had to die for you, and that should humble you out of your pride and self-centeredness. Do you see how the story, or without the story of the gospel, that we would all be in our cliques, and without the gospel, we would never give each other the time of day The more we understand the gospel, the more we seek to engage others, whether they are like us or very different from us.
So when do you really change? When was your last identity crisis? When does the boldness and the humility of the gospel really hit you? I don't believe it comes. I don't believe it just comes naturally. I believe it comes and I believe grace comes in the form of a crisis. I believe it comes when we truly reckon with our own sinful condition. Why did Joseph, who had always been timid or scared that anyone would know, come out when it was so, so dangerous? I believe the crisis in, in his personal and professional life of seeing the Sanhedrin condemn Jesus caused him to realize his need for grace. I believe that where you're sitting there this morning, God can use your crisis your circumstances to bring you, others, and others closer to him. It doesn't matter what the crisis is. It may be medical. It may be financial. It may be a relationship, and it may be a besetting sin. Jesus Christ brings us together in a crisis. And our response to him defines who we are. In my particular case, it's been all of them. I have asthma and I don't breathe real well all the time. Yet God has brought people into my life to help me. I've seen our businesses do really well. And frankly, not so well. But key relationships spoke into my life. One almost dragged me here. I love you, brother. He brought me in. In a crisis of my own life, I wasn't treating Cindy like the bride she is. I had no view of what a shepherd was. I was really self-centered. And finally, I had no real view of the, I had no real view of the kingdom. I just had a view of me. Grace most often comes in the form of a crisis. It will hit you traumatically, but it's well worth it. Our supper this morning will be taken from Mark chapter 14, verse 22. So um, let's distribute the elements and then we'll walk through this and take our supper. In Mark 15, excuse me, Mark 14, 22, Jesus says, and as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them. And he said, take this, my body. And he took it, excuse me, and he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank. Take it as grace and revel in it. Take and eat, take and drink. Father, may we take it as grace Thank you, Father, for your patience with your children. Thank you, Father, for loving us in ways that we don't understand and we don't comprehend. Thank you, Father, for the cross. And, Father, whether we find ourselves as a centurion, the women, or the Pharisee, 
that your grace is sufficient for us, Father, and that you love us. Bless the remainder of our time together. These things I ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a few things real briefly in closing. Kids, y'all did a wonderful job this morning. Um, Way to go. I think kids are going to clap for themselves. Way to go. That's fine. Um, Parents of kids, y'all did a wonderful job this morning as well. Um, I was thinking this morning, if you showed up not remembering that it was the last Sunday of the month, you may not have been prepared to wrestle your children during the sermon. And so in closing, I kind of just want to remind everyone why we do that. Um, this, uh, we heard a wonderful sermon this morning. We've worshiped together and we've done so with our children. And, and I believe that's what the Lord desires. And I want to convince you that it's not an unnecessary distraction. It's certainly a distraction, but it's not unnecessary. It, when your child is breakdancing on the floor in front of you, it's hard to listen to the sermon. When I have my son in a headlock, it's difficult to connect with the pastor at that moment. All of our sermons are recorded. They're online. Um, use that um, if, if you have trouble hearing uh, the sermons. But I wanted to read from Deuteronomy as my son cries in the back. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The last Sunday of every month, we have our kids in here to try to work towards those things. We want to raise them in the fear and the discipline of the Lord and not just throw them into corporate worship once they're like 14 or 15 and they got other issues to deal with. So um, that's a process that we think is very, very uh, important. Lord, we love you very much, and we are thankful for our time uh, each week to come together in corporate worship to, uh, to seek your glory, to seek to honor you. I pray this morning that as we go, um, we would be very encouraged um, by what was accomplished for us on the cross. Uh, I pray that each of us would keep Christ central in all things, and I pray that that would cause us to be um, big-hearted and open-handed with people we know who are close to and with strangers. Um, We pray for opportunities to put that gospel on display as we go, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a great day.